Um, I will be reading Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 27 and 29 through uh, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may be give that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God and believe, or as beloved children. Many times, we find ourselves in life eaten from the inside out. There's something that irritates us, something that bothers us, something that's gotten a hold of us, something that we're obsessing over. Maybe it's something someone said at work or a slight we received at the hand of the boss. A highway patrolman who was less than candid as we appeared before the judge and so that ticket we deserved anyway stuck. a fight we might have had with a spouse. Parents that don't get it. Children that don't listen. And we're eaten. And we're consumed. And we're dried up and spit out and used up because we've obsessed because we've been eaten from the inside out. Now, I know our thoughts vary one from the other a bit. But I know that in my life, I experience sadness oftentimes, or disappointment sometimes, or hurt sometimes as anger. I think a lot of men are like that. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But when I experience that flash of anger that may really represent hurt or pain or loss or something else, my first thought is to vengeance. Again, while I'm far from a magnificent human being, I know I'm not unique in this. Many of you have the same thought. And if you're women, you have it even worse than we men do. It's called mean girl syndrome. Just a few words and you can dispatch of about anybody. But there's a classic text that says, 
vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Christianity has a number of very sound doctrines. And when I say sound, I don't mean provable or backed up in the authority of Scripture or revealed or otherwise. We would say all of them are. When I say sound, I'm referring to they are psychologically sound. They resonate with the actual living experience of us daily. And two of the most psychologically profound doctrines or thoughts or beliefs or holdings within Christendom are, first of all, that forgiveness is essential for mental health. You want to meet somebody mentally ill, look at somebody who can't ever let go of anything. Have you met the type? Do you like hanging out with those people? I know I don't. And the second thing is that when we seek vengeance, we give ourselves over to something that ultimately destroys us. It consumes us and destroys us. I know this is sinking in. But there's a really, really old story and not being a prolific reader myself, I have to say sometimes it's the cliff note version of something I look at. So at least I've done that. How many of you have actually read cover to cover Moby Dick? Good for you. I see four or five hands. That's amazing. That's that's good. So if I've gotten some detail of the story essentially wrong, uh, we'll blame it on cliff notes and uh, forgive me. But as I understand it, this book written in 1851, published in 1851, was the story of a whaling ship and a particular captain named Ahab who in the quest for a particular whale, a white sperm whale, an albino sperm whale, a rarity, a beast of rare proportion, he lost his leg. The beast that had taken his leg, this whale, seeking to preserve its own life from the deadly harpoon, this beast became the embodiment of evil for Captain Ahab. And he seeks justice for his missing limb. There's another who's lost an arm to this beast. It must be stopped. And so he sails and sails and wails in quest of this monster. Now, truthfully, uh, a sperm whale is something of a monster. For those of you who uh, haven't thought about it lately, it is one of the few toothed whales. It has enormous lung capacity. It is absolutely a mammoth creature. It's one of the larger of the whales. And it can dive to depths that nobody really knows because it hunts in the depths of the sea, 5,000 feet down, 4,000 feet down, giant squid and does battle holding its breath with these creatures. So I would say a giant white sperm whale makes quite a, uh, a monster indeed. 
ultimately various ships who have on board prophets or seers or odd folks who see the future somehow. They all prophesy to Ahab not to go after this beast, to let it be. And eventually one of them sees his death and puts it in terms of a hemp rope and I forget the second part of it, but it doesn't seem to indicate a watery grave. And so Captain Ahab, believing that his death will not come as he pursues vengeance on this creature, continues his quest. Only the whale attacks his ship, rams it, and sinks it, and ends up with the harpoon in him attached to a hemp rope, pulls Captain Ahab out of the whaling boat to his death by drowning. It's descriptive, isn't it? Even works of fiction have it right. And by the way, I, I have to just say, this is such an obvious piece of human experience and history that even Hollywood gets it right most of the time. Now, I know Hollywood sells a lot of movies because most of us want to vicariously achieve vengeance, right? So when we see the, the hero who's been wronged in some way or his family's been hurt in some way, something's happened, and he goes out and just annihilates the bad guys and usually several city blocks and tens of millions of dollars worth of property damage and whatever else, helicopters falling out of the sky, cars and buses colliding. Well, we all like these blockbusters, at least many of us do. At the end of the day, we're gratified because vengeance has been achieved and we don't frame it that way. We say, justice was done. But even Hollywood get the, gets this right many times. Even Hollywood and fiction understand many times that vengeance is a course of self-destruction. I want to see my Jesus. I want to see my Jesus. I want to see my Jesus. I'm going to live with God. No more weeping and a-wailing. No more sing with me weeping and a-wailing. No more weeping and a-wailing. I'm going to live with God. I'm going to live with God. I'm going to live with God. That's the spiritual, isn't it? And I took the liberty at the suggestion of Eric, creative as a guy that he is, of substituting whaling, W-A-I-L-I-N-G, for whaling. If we're going to live with God... Vengeance has got to be his, not ours. Turn to Isaiah 2. Now, the descriptor here is not particularly about the notion of vengeance, it's, but it, I think it encompasses it, as you'll see. 
This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. On the mount of the Lord's temple will be established as a chief, as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. O come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We believe as a country and many of us as Christians in the doctrine of just war. But more people have died exacting war on Iraq than was than deaths that were done by the act of treachery and violence and mayhem and war when our cities were attacked as planes were hijacked in 9-11. Whatever you may think, whichever political party you're affiliated with, whatever you want to say about things, peace all the way around would yield fewer casualties, don't you agree? And at the end of the day, attacked as we were, needing to do something, we decided to wage war. We attacked the nation. We took its leader and arrested him. But thousands of ours have died and over 100,000 of theirs. And I asked myself, what would it look like for us to beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks? What constructively could the Christian willing to turn the other cheek accomplish? I want to be clear. There is a time to act. There is a time for war. That's even biblical. There is a time to stand up as a people or a nation and do what is right or just. But I think that needs to be pursued carefully, judiciously, honestly. And at the end of the day, what we're called to is peace. At the end of the day, Jerusalem in this passage becomes the mountain of God, this place where justice flows. This place where the disputes are settled without war. Where vengeance isn't taken. And I just wonder what that would look like in the larger scope of our lives. What would it look like to go to Jerusalem? And I don't mean the earthly city, and I don't mean the literal city. I mean this place, this mountain of the Lord, this God who judges between the nations, the one who sheds his light and life on us all. Turn to our text for today, too, please, Ephesians Ephesians 4, Ruthie read it for us just a few minutes ago. 
Verse 26 is perhaps uh, a clue to the most relevant part of our passage here. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Those two passages speak a lot about vengeance, whether it's explicitly stated or not, don't they? Just a few minutes ago, I was sharing how oftentimes I, and I know many other men and and people in general, sometimes experience hurt or pain or sorrow initially as anger and lash out as a result of that. It seems to be a fairly common thing. And yet this passage is telling us quite plainly, in your anger, do not sin. And more importantly, don't give the devil a foothold. I don't need to ask how many of you have been wronged. All of you. And I don't need to ask if that was a pleasant experience or an unpleasant experience. That's equally obvious. And I don't need to ask if you were philosophical about it or not. I know that at some level you may have become that, but initially you were emotional about it. And I don't need to ask that we all I don't need to ask if you have a rich fantasy life because I know we all do. But at the end of the day, did your spear become a pruning hook? Did your sword become a plowshare? At the end of the day, did you go to the mountain of God? At the end of the day, were you consumed? Did the devil have a foothold? Or were you free? Were you free? I'm not going to lie to you. Every day is a struggle for freedom. And most of the battles are internal. Most of the battles are waged within the confines of my own mind and yours. Most of the injustices given time for us to process take on ultimately a different color. And if we've seen them clearly, initially, in time we're in position to open our hand and let go because it is the grace of God that continues to work in our lives. This is not drama and it's not dramatic. Most of us don't have horrible things that we want to avenge or need to avenge in the course of our days and our lives. But most of us find ourselves giving the devil a foothold as we struggle with the petty injustices and difficulties of daily life. I'll give you an example. You'll love this. It's classic. It's the kind of thing that makes you wish a company would go out of business for. Ever feel that way? You ever had a company step on your toes and you're just like, oh, Lord, let them go out of business? 
it's actually worked a couple of times, that prayer. <laughs> that and a bad economy, Jill says. <laughs> no, um, I bought a, uh, uh, a camera, and with it I brought, bought a printer, and the printer would be free with the rebate that they were offering. So I carefully filled out all the paperwork and did the checklist that they had and faithfully, and of course I'm not stupid, I copied it all and kept a copy as well, sent this off and it came back oh, a month or so later. Your request has been denied. This is a duplicate request. And oh, by the way, you didn't enclose, enclose the UPC. Well, there are three UPCs on this box. How many of them do they need? Right? And it doesn't say which UPC. There was a white one, a red one, and a blue one. Didn't say which one to send. A UPC is a UPC, is it not? Barcode, isn't that what we're talking about? Clearly the receipt said I had bought both items that were qualified for the rebate. When I got that letter, the devil got a foothold almost immediately. My blood pressure went up. My face got even more red than usual. I found myself wishing to say things to people who know me not, know nothing about my particulars or situation, know nothing about any of it. I found myself wishing that the Canon Corporation would go out of business. How dare they deprive me of my rebate? And I found myself fantasizing about all of the unfortunate hours I was going to have to give this stupid little problem from these stupid people who couldn't read a UPC code or a checklist and these stupid people who didn't know that I had only made one request, not two. You ever feel that way? You're laughing. You feel that way. And you use stronger words than stupid, too. (laughs) I still haven't gotten my $300 rebate. I did find the right UPC code, whatever that was. And I did send a letter. And we'll see. I'll let you know. Maybe Canon, I'll still be hoping, goes out of business in a month or two. But you can see from that silly little story how quickly we become pulled in and consumed and how these petty injustices and inconveniences and stupidities in life trip us up and slow us up. You know, I can pretty much... Total a car and walk away and be okay, but a rebate from Canon throws me all off in the universe. Any of you like that? The big stuff, uh, I, yeah, okay, I couldn't control that. That's the way it goes. Little stuff? Jesus says, Come to me. I want to give you rest. Cast your cares on me, for I care for you. And let me carry it. And my response to that most of the time is, no, I'm fine. I'm, uh, I, I kind of enjoy dragging this along. And believe it or not, that's your response most of the time too. 
But we've got an opportunity to let vengeance be his. To trust him with the burdens of life. To carry things just a little more lightly. To walk in his joy and to experience his goodness and his greatness. We have a chance not to be consumed. We have a choice not to give the devil a foothold. Because in the end, vengeance is God's. It's up to you. It's up to you. But I would say, no more weeping or wailing. And so, Lord, grant us of freedom. Teach us to trust in you and to let vengeance be yours and to give these things, all of them, to you. For you care for us. Amen.